I'll make the bolder statement that Ukraine achieves victory in a matter of months and not years. What if there's 10,000 troops mechanized with a little armored tip, which is what they used up in Turkey? What if that's waiting? And if they did have that, what would they use it for before the winter? Russia wants Ukraine to temporarily halt. It wants them to solidify the lines to give them time to reconsolidate like they did between April and May. So I do think that this is the point at which historians will look at it and go, that was when the war started to end. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Martin and John Spencer, who are both prominent commentators on the invasion of Ukraine and need little introduction. They have both appeared on the Voices of War in the past, and you can find links in the show notes to those previous discussions. They join me today for an update on the situation in Ukraine. Mike is joining us from London, and John from his home in Colorado Springs. Gentlemen, welcome back to the Voices of War. Hello, mate. Hey, thanks, Mage. Thanks for having me back. Gentlemen, just to timestamp this conversation, we're recording this just after 9 p.m. on the evening of 22nd of September in Ukraine time. There is lots to cover and our time is rather short, so we'll get straight into it. Maybe, uh, Mike, we'll start with you. Can you give us a brief summary of what you see happening in Ukraine at the moment? Uh, so over the last 10 days, over the last fortnight, Russia has suffered its its second big reversal. So the first one was in April when they withdrew their, their troops from around Kyiv and went back into Belarus. And, and that was kind of them accepting that they weren't going to decapitate the, the Ukrainian government. And then we've just seen this second one where the Ukrainians punched through the Russian lines and took out lots of their logistics and, and basically caused the whole front line to collapse. Mm. And whilst they've been doing that, they've also been uh, pushing uh, ahead with their offensive in the south toward Kherson, which is obviously in the direction of Crimea the Russian strategic centre of gravity tied up lots of Russian troops down there. And since that, you know, the offensive probably took 9,000 square kilometres or something, huge mm, amounts of territory. Yeah, it's massive. Huge yeah. amounts of territory. And actually since then, the Russians haven't been able to stabilise their front line. Like they tried to stabilise it on a river called the River Oskol, but the Ukrainians have crossed that in several places. And now they've got, the Ukrainians have got back into Luhansk so you remember about a month ago or six weeks ago, the Russians announced, oh, we've got Luhansk. That's one of the two we seem to get Donetsk and then we're done with yeah. our war here. So it's been a real, it's been a real disaster. Um, they've had a an entire formation wiped out, the first yeah. guards tank army. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. like losing, I mean, I don't know. In the, in and this British, is sort of an elite unit, at least. That's what they like to call it, at least. Well, I don't know. I mean, the yeah, word like the 16th period. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, elite's kind of thrown around a lot, but like, yeah. It's like a whole named unit that's got a kind of folklore about it gone. Yeah. And and the stories that we hear are of Russian troops changing their uniforms, running away, abandoning loads of equipment. Mm. And the Ukrainians, ever masterful on info ops, are tweeting, you know, we'd like to thank the Russians for their latest arms deliveries for our war effort. You know, it's yeah, <laughs> it's been a disaster for Russia. And, and it's not over yet. They haven't stabilised that front line. They haven't got mm. the troops. They've lost loads of equipment. Like, watch this space. John, what's it looking like from you? I, I not only suspect, but I know you pretty closely tapped into the tactical situation on the ground. 
Uh, what's it looking like from your end? Well, I mean, I agree with Mike. I mean, it looks like the second biggest defeat of the Russian military on the field of battle since their abandonment of their primary strategic objective, which is regime change in mm. Ukraine, taking the capital city. Now, as a you know, kind of a tactical guy, I also look at what we're seeing in the areas that are being taken, right? Not just the abandoned equipment, but the quality of the equipment, mm. the order and discipline of the, the troops mm. um, that we're seeing, which I think even surprised, to be honest, Ukrainians, one that that the that what was left, right? Some of the Roscardia, some of the LPR, DPR, when faced with any resistance, they just folded. But also the the state that they were living in and the quality of the positions. And I agree with Mike. You know, there's lots of fighting happening, but trying to connect strategy down to tactics. But also the last couple of days, I know we'll get into it. The announcements coming out of mm. Kremlin are a very big sign on how's it going. Well, let's get into that now because that was uh, that that is the kind of most prominent topic uh, at the moment. Putin's partial mobilization of allegedly three hundred thousand reserves. What do you make of this move? And, and you know, who who are these poor conscripts? Uh, and I think we're seeing images of that emerging now as to the who they actually are. Uh, but what's the likely impact? Maybe uh, yeah, over to you, John. So what is it, right? So it's call up of up to thirty thousand. What they call reserves. They don't have like a reserve, like what us in the West would think of, like units that train regularly or anything. These are younger personnel who have served some amount of time and done their mandatory service mm-hmm. that were sent notices, report back to duty. Um, you'll be given two weeks of refresher training and then sent straight to the front line, which is just mm-hmm. crazy because you think about what we're seeing about mm-hmm. the front line and you're just going to flow yeah, people yeah. in. It's literally I mean, most of us that yeah. understand. Well, yeah. Yeah, literally cannon fodder because how do you do mass mobilizations? One, you spin up your country um, and create the infrastructure to yeah. receive, yeah. even if it's somebody who served in the military two or four years, and you create new units or you create soldiers ready to plug yeah. into units. Russia has need, doesn't have the capacity and infrastructure to do that. They're literally, and we've seen videos this morning of them putting them on yeah. buses. They're going to bus them somewhere, and then somehow, if they can, logistically, get them to these BTGs and these units that are already in such poor quality. I know Mike uh, and why we fight will we'll want to touch on what is it, what does it look like when you take somebody, you know, a conscript is kind of used kind of overall, like people talk about conscripts and sometimes that's, that's a mandatory service. It, they still mm. showed up to mm. serve, mm. but when you start drafting people, which is mm. what this is, although it's of people who have served before, that's what they call it. Reserves. Russia just started the draft, yeah. which it hasn't had to do since World War II. So it's significant because what they also did was stop loss the conscripts that are currently in from leaving. Mm, that's right. So yeah. these guys who, yeah, who served, I can tell you, even from a very highly motivated professional unit, when you receive people that are forced into service or who are forced not to be let mm. go, if you didn't have problems already, which the Russians do, they're going to have a lot of <laughs> soldiering <laughs> problems. Yeah. If yeah. you know what I mean. Mike? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Exactly. And it's not, there's actually a kind of patchwork quilt of Russian military force in Ukraine. So you've got the kind of professional army, which one assumes these recruits are going to f- flow into. You've got the Wagner. The, the big assumption PMC. by now, isn't right. it? Right. <laughs> well, well, because it's not clear, right? So here, here are the current like force providers. So you've got the Russian army. You've got 
um, the Wagner Group, the PMCs, mm. and we've seen videos of them recruiting prisoners recently. And also reports of when they get to the front line, they just surrender immediately because <laughs> that gets them out of their 23-year prison term in Russia. <laughs> then you've got, who have you got? You've got the Chechens, and there's another guy, I can't remember, beginning with P, who's got his own little private army. So you've basically got a bunch of private armies, basically another oligarchs. So you've got a bunch of private armies in uh, Ukraine, and they don't speak to each other. Mm. There's not a unified chain of command. And, you know, Putin, we hear today, you know, Putin's reaching right down to the battlefield to talk to tactical or operational commanders to command them That's rather insane. than so that, that whole strategic layer of Russian command is missing. Into that, you're going to inject what? A bunch of guys who have had two weeks training. By the way, most of the training battalions are in Ukraine already. So they're, the trainers are either dead or they're fighting. Mm. Already the soldiers are not equipped well and the logistics system is broken. So 10, I saw someone say on Twitter, I was very apt, 100 men can run away at the same speed as 10 men, but they eat 10 times as much food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, we're, we're obviously laughing at this, but that's the, it seems ludicrous what we're seeing. And there's also the other added layer that I get is emerging now that these, these mainly you know, minorities across Russia from the poor areas that yeah. are being dragged into this. Undoubtedly, yeah, this is going... Siberia, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's just insane. From some of the poorest, you know, regions, which is in every war, really, right? It's going to be, you know, your minorities that are really going to go and serve. Yeah. But that's yeah. undoubtedly going to start having some sort of corroding effect from those areas when all of their men all of a sudden are going to fight for a war for a, for a leader who not necessarily held in good light by them anyway. No, it, this is not actually about generating military capability because it, you either take a long time developing these reservists and they go there, you know, fighting fit in six months or three months, whether or, you know, as John said, you put them through a two-week training course and they're just cannon fodder. I mean, either way, they don't generate military capability in the timeframes mm. that you need it. Mm. So what's going on? Well, since the failure of this Kharkiv, you know, the, the Russian collapse at the, at the hands of this Ukrainian offensive, Putin's been taking a lot of flack. And all of these right-wing, ultra-nationalist headbangers on all the talk shows are giving him loads of flack. Mm, mm. And his fingerprints are all over this war. This is Putin's war. Yeah, And they've been calling for you know nuclear annihilation of the West, dropping nuclear bombs on London and Berlin, and mobilization of the whole country, and you know, mm. total war and all that kind of stuff. So what this is, is I think a, it's not a total mobilization because that would cause, you know, lots of problems like you're saying. It's a partial mobilization as a sop to the right wing to say, look, I'm doing something. I'm getting everything going, but it's not, it's not going to de deliver any military capability. And hopefully it's not extensive enough to, you mm. know, it's not civilians, it's reservists or whatever. Hopefully not extensive enough to really like, you know, get people, you know, revolting. But And it's not the Russian middle class, right? It's not uh, Moscow. Mm. That's no. uh, that's being sent to the front. As much as there's now more and more protests, have you any thoughts on that, John? I see you nodding. But any thoughts to Mike's previous comments or, or or the protests in Russia? I mean, I think it also, yeah. I mean, this is all wars politics by other means. This is this is clearly through the the advice and the and the chess game for Russia. But it's a global. There is a global perception of that action that Putin is having to take that. He even said on public TV he would not mm -hmm. do the call for the reserves mm -hmm. for his special military operation is a sign of defeat. There is an element of desperation. And I think the protests, although we all know that 
they're not big enough to have a real impact, but they're, they're significant. And, and it, maybe it's just a little crack and mm-hmm. um, whether it's the sold out flights immediately yeah. out of Russia yeah. uh, or the Googling of how to, how to get out of Russia or how to yeah. break my arm. Yeah. Um, I mean, all these things are, are small snippet signs of it ain't going mm-hmm. well for the Russian soldiers in Ukraine uh, or the Russian Putin regime mm. for sure. What did you make of uh, the way Putin was treated uh, in Uzbekistan last week as well by leaders who otherwise should be bowing to him? Uh, but of course, then we saw you know Erdogan and Modi make it quite clear as to where they consider Russia to be at the moment. Any thoughts on that? I think there's, I, I don't know, I, it might be a bit bold, but I think you can argue that we're actually seeing the beginning of the end of the war. Mm. Significant military defeats for Russia on the battlefield. We've just spoken about this kind of threat to Putin's right flank that he's trying to deal with. So he's got domestic troubles, right? Mm. And then Modi says to him, don't forget Modi and Russia. You know, India mm. and Russia go back a long way. India's been buying all the oil during the war. Modi says it. 2022, mm. we shouldn't be settling things with war. Mm. Putin says in public to Xi. Now, imagine mm. what's actually been said in private if this was said in public. We understand, President <laughs> Xi, that you have concerns and questions about the war, and I will hope to solve some of those questions for you. Erdogan, President of Turkey, who has been playing this very clever bridging role between Ukraine and Russia, you know, they organised that grain deal with mm. uh, Guterres, the UN Secretary General. Mm-hmm. He said Crimea should go back to its rightful owners. Yeah, I that was huge. Yeah. I mean, this is absolutely nuts. So what everyone has seen, with what the Ukrainians have demonstrated with that offensive, this is a great sort of example of how the tactical slash operational war affects the strategic, mm-hmm. is the Ukrainians handed the Russians' arses to them on a plate on the battlefield, mm-hmm. and suddenly the international environment shifted and people realised that Russia was going to lose the war. I mean, actually, if you've been studying the war, it's pretty obvious they were going to lose it right from the beginning. But suddenly a load of people have gone, oh, my God, they're going to lose the war. And look at them. They're all realigning themselves. Mm, yeah, that's, all yeah, yeah. realigning themselves to be on the winning side, you know, the winning international coalition. So I do think that this is the point at which historians will look at it and go, that was when the war started to end. John, any comments? Yeah, I 100% agree, um, especially when you talk about massive wars, um, the allies matter, whether they're silent allies or they're vocal allies, right? Well, I think another point that I was extremely surprised and uh, like some of my friends at Rusi, when Russia has to go to North Korea mm. for artillery rounds, <laughs> like that was, should have mm. been a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost yeah. comic- yeah. Yeah. comical. Yeah. But that yeah. like that blew because our mind as them. we all thought like they had this you know this just these Soviet stockpiles of tanks and artillery guns and artillery rounds like that was one of the first signs and that was yeah. even before they got completely mm-hmm. defeated mm-hmm. in detail. I mean, they actually got outthought if you look at the operational mm-hmm. campaign and the Harrison mm-hmm. offensive, and the Russians were maneuvering a force towards Harrison. One, it's about operational mobility. They were just going too slow. Mm. And then the Ukrainians have better intelligence, capitalized on a weakness in the yeah. Kharkiv front, and, and just kept going. Yeah. And like Mike said, they're not done yet. But yeah, when you go to North Korea for your artillery rounds, they have to go to Iran for drones. your drones. Mm. Uh, 
and your prisons. It ain't going well, but mm. yeah, your prisons and those are those are legit. I mean, that's just in, it's just insane. But I agree. I, I personally, you don't like to say this, right? Because how much fighting is still done, right? These thirty thousand or whatever men are going to reach the Ukraine territories, Ukraine sovereign land, and they're going to be forced to do something. They're just going mm. to die. So there's not there's still fighting to be done, especially to take back areas of Luhansk and Donetsk that have been in Russian control for a long time. I used to say, you know, the whole Stalin quote where their quantity has its own quality. But in this case, Russia's too far gone Mm -hmm. to add just men to this equation, right? You can break that down by, you know, all the combat arms, right? Tanks, artillery, like just adding people isn't Mm. the solution to the problem. It's such a great quote, isn't it? Because actually that's what they've tried to do. They've tried to fight a a Soviet style of warfare. But the the difference is that the Soviets in World War II had a six million person army. That's mm. what when Stalin said quantity, yep. that's what he meant. Yeah. That's quantity, right? Yeah. And they didn't even have enough. Yep. You know, famously, one rifle between two, off you go. When the guy right. rifle gets that's killed, right. the other one picks it up, right? But that's not quantity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're talking about a few hundred thousand at mm. most. They started mm. the war with between 150 200. That's not quantity. Mm. That would be, you know, the Soviet troops in a tiny sector of the front. Mm. It's a completely different. They probably had more motorcyclists than that in the Soviet army in the Second World War. Yeah, it's bizarre, and it's also completely yeah. two competing ways to fight war. You know, it's trying to flood the front mm. lines with with men uh, in this kind of classic attrition style warfare mm. against decentralized command, highly motivated troops, highly trained troops that are really embracing maneuverist warfare. Uh, and we're seeing the results. I mean, it, like you were saying before, an entire formation. <laughs> To just delete it from the battlefield, I mean that just, I mean that shows you the different level of tactical skill, well, martial skill, really. I'm um, sorry, John, you were about to say something as well. I think. I- no, no, I, I, I no, 100% agree. I mean, the, Putin does not mm-hmm. have a red army, not even in moral, you know, in the in the fight of the soldier, right? He, he can't call upon this great reserve of people willing to die for mother, the motherland, mm-hmm. because that's not mm-hmm. what this is about. Ukraine has the advantage in every measure yeah. of war fighting except mm. yeah. number of people. And arguably, um, we could actually argue because nobody knows the true number of the Ukrainian fighting force, because even in its offensive, we've seen, you know, we've seen regular army, uh, Ukrainian army, we've seen Ukrainian National Guard, territorial defenses. They're combining the legion. I don't even know if they're yeah. out. And they've got, they've got a nation, right? They've got an entire nation to fight. Yeah, that's absolutely. a nature of maneuver warfare, right? The nature of maneuver warfare is you is you right. move your troops around so you create local overmatch. Mm. So even if there's more Russian troops in Ukraine than the Ukrainians, which I severely doubt, because like you say, it's the whole nation fighting. Because they're much more mobile, they're much, you know, as John was saying, they're outthinking the Russians. Mm. They're they're achieving local concentrations that enables them to punch through, collapse the logistics. Therefore, the whole front collapses. And then they can, and then those troops will just move somewhere else and repeat the trick again. Yeah, I actually feel like it's it, like Putin's a kid saying, "Won't you just fight me the way I want you to fight me? <laughs> like, come at me! You're like, I need you're literally stand living still, in the old world. Stand where still. You, you know, yeah. he had no military yeah. experience. That's yeah. Like, face, yeah. fight yeah. me! Like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna just strike your force behind you. Like, like literally, uh, and then I'm gonna put the, your soldiers to the test. And when they're soldiers. Literally, think about every battle that's happened so far. 
outside of the small massing effort that they did in May, June around, you know, Severe Donetsk, you know, to mm. take that part of Luhansk, they can't adapt. They want to fight attrition. They want to fight mass on mass. Mm. And the Ukrainians won't give them that. Like Mike said, they they have better intelligence and they'll move faster. Now they have better weapons, not just including the MLRS or the artillery, just to counter battery and the harm missile. They're just eroding the Russian military piece by piece. Yeah. And I definitely want to get to the uh, weapons piece as well. And this is one of the most prominent questions asked you know, by the audience as well. But just one thing that I want to pick up on, and, and that's the referendums that Putin has called and just tie them in, because I think they, they are also significant indicators of what potentially Putin's strategic aims might be by this point. What do you make of these? I mean, they're laughable by the rest of the world, but what do you make of these referendums? John, do you have any points? I have my own thoughts, but I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, John. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's it, it's what the Putin regime needs to do to fit the narrative of defending Russian territory. He wants to rush a vote, but it's it's comical because it, he literally wants to rush a vote to areas that he doesn't currently control militarily, like all of the Luhansk region. Not just talking about cities. He wants to do a referendum for of Luhansk for Oblast that he doesn't even militarily control, maybe Donetsk. And then hold a vote, which and then by constitution is already set up. Once it happens constitutionally, it mm. you know in their marker becomes Russian territory, which then they can use self defense as their justification for their actions. He's almost mm. setting up his next act of desperation if he can stage this vote, mm. um, which is clearly what happens. It gets staged. Like if it was any type of legitimacy, like invite some international. Arbitrator to the servers, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Isn't it interesting how people who clearly don't believe in democracy feel the need to have votes mm. to <laughs> validate their position? Because mm. you know, Putin's had loads of elections in Russia, which he keeps on winning. Right? Mm. I just mm. find it really interesting. What mm. if they're so convinced of their own? They clearly do feel. A weakness or in an inferiority complex towards democracy, surely, mm. because otherwise, why would they be having these referendums? Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and he's actually losing the people. Even in Harrison, where he, you know, that was a, one of the first areas seized in March. Um, there was a chance where, he, if you could have staged it, you know, he had such control of the area at that moment that it would have not been as laughable. But now you have a vibrant partisan actions happening in these areas. Um, where literally, like state, you know, people who've been assigned to control the areas are are ending up dead. You know, attacks, bombings, you name it. And I think that's only going to increase, which just furthers that this isn't about liberating Russian people, which is just ridiculous. Yeah. And, and I think it also ties in the potential three hundred thousand recruits that he's uh, trying to mobilize. And and I've read this commentary uh, elsewhere, but if he and and of course we know that these referendums. Uh, will be in the affirmative uh, for Russia, you know, along the lines of 96%, 88%, you know, <laughs> want to be part mm -hmm. of Russia. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I read comments of some pundit uh, on Twitter, uh, you know, that these numbers are already known somewhere. They're in a file somewhere, undoubtedly. Uh, they'll, be rolled, <laughs> you know, they'll be rolled out over the weekend. But what's interesting is then potentially is about this, you know, winters around the corner. It's about, yeah. you know, setting in and digging in and using these additional troops to basically go and uh, fill sandbags uh, and fortify the positions and fortify the newly Russian lands. Is the target audience the domestic 
is it is it is it the domestic audience in Russia? Is that the main target audience for it to gain further? Yeah, support for the war at home to stop that support slipping, and, and to and to not risk the you know the sixty percent of apathetic uh, Russians yeah, yeah, jumping yeah. on board and saying, "Hey, we actually don't support this war." When yeah, now you have yeah. referendum numbers. Oh well, these people actually want to be Russians. Fine, let's just carry yeah, on with our yeah, yeah. with our blissful yeah. life yeah, of yeah, yeah. Uh, of irrelevance. Yeah, that that that, yeah. that that was at least my reading of it. Any any comments before we move on? No, I think um you know I always like I'm an old soldier. It's needed at the in his political calculus, but I think it, he's also understands he doesn't have the soul of the of the soldier to fight, and this would just be part of that narrative. Why are you fighting? Right, answer the why. I'm fighting for my fellow countrymen to be free and mm. and they see the as they occupy these areas what we've seen they done they have done to their people like the people they are liberating then why were why are they committing these genocides mm. in these areas it just all starts to unravel but i see it as a also a way like these new people like give them the why because i'm sure there's talks that they have to have like okay this is why i'm asking you to sacrifice but you know war puts that to the test and, and winter's coming and that's going to put that. Why are you there to test? <laughs> yeah, yeah, undoubtedly. Uh, which I think is a, a a neat segue as well into the next uh, segment I want to cover, and that's the you know w- well, firstly, what can Ukraine do next, given that winter is around the corner? But we do also know that Ukraine might not be finished. They might not be finished with their plans or exploiting their current weaknesses. So, from your perspectives, what do you see as uh, happening next? Maybe to, over to John first. Sure. So I agree with you that um, because the line started collapsing so rapidly, it's hard to tell where to consolidate your gains and versus a keep exploiting, exploiting weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I so this is what I strongly believe will happen. Of course, Ukraine will have to consolidate its gains. It can do that much easier because of things like territorial defenses. They're liberating their lands, and they have they're doing work. They're literally fighting my proverbial blue black wars. They liberate an area then they immediately start all the humanitarian aid and pension pain and all that stuff um that's time consuming but russia wants ukraine to temporarily halt it wants them to solidify the lines to give them time to reconsolidate like they did between april and may time frame mm. and and people believe that the weather will do that for it i personally think that ukraine is already planning its next moves you know, it will take Harrison, um, and it will mm. not. It will slow momentum, right? The winter weather it will slow momentum, but it won't mm. stop yeah. the momentum by far. Mm. I, I think Ukrainians are going to keep pushing. You know, that Western aid, more packages being announced, more stuff being delivered, more soldiers being trained in places like the UK and Poland. They're getting stronger, but they are mm-hmm. having to control. You know, basically spread out and control more territory, but they're getting stronger. And I think that the Russians are relying, hoping that the winter come slows things down for them. And I don't think they mm-hmm. will. I think the mm-hmm. Ukrainians will keep attacking them, and that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, was, I found it interesting as well that uh, President Zelensky actually made that point in his address to the UN General Assembly. You know, He publicly called out and shamed Putin, basically saying he wants a pause. He yep. wants us to stop so he can, uh, you know, rebuild uh, and attack again in the spring, which mm-hmm. I thought was a rather, rather brave move. That's why I think the next, the next moment in this 
this victory for Ukraine will be the reclaiming of areas that were controlled before February 24th, whether that's mm-hmm. the, the city of Luhansk or um, full mm-hmm. control of Donetsk. You know, th- those are going to be the, the the next, I think, major moments is when they reclaim territory that's been occupied for you know, eight years or more. Mm. What do you reckon, Mike? I, well, I've got a bit of a, I'm sort of, you know, if I were the Ukrainians, what would I do? I, I totally agree with John about this. Where do they, you know, both sides are kind of nibbling at each other in the northeast to try and work out where to set the new front line. Um, and that looks like it's continuing. The Russians are finding it hard to stabilise. The Ukrainians are working out exactly how far to extend themselves. Mm. But I think there's a really interesting question. You know, John said earlier, we don't really know how many Ukrainian soldiers there are. So what if there's a strategic reserve? Mm. What if there's 10,000 troops mechanized with a little armored tip, mm. which is what they used up in Turkey? What if that, what if that's waiting, right? And if, if they did have that, what would they use it for before the winter? And what I'd use it for before the winter is retaking, say, Mariupol oh, yeah. or Melitopol or some, something along the Black Sea coast mm. to basically... At the moment, the Russians have got the loads in the east and they've got Crimea and Kherson, but they've mm. got this little strip along the Black Sea mm, coast that right, connects yeah. it. So I, I would just sever that. <laughs> and then we'll settle in for winter. <laughs> then we'll settle in for winter because that's how they move troops backwards and forwards. So, you know, throughout the war, the Russians have suffered from the extended supply lines. Because if you think about it, the Ukrainians are fighting on the inside of a circle. So if they need to move troops around, it's just moving across the inside Mm -hmm. of the circle. Mm -hmm. Because if the Russians are trying to fight the war and they want to move troops from one, you know, from the far northeast to the south, they have to go all the way around the circle. So it takes much, much, much longer to reinforce. That's a huge inbuilt advantage that the Ukrainians have. But why why not make that even worse? And just sever the two bits that are currently connected. So the east suddenly becomes one war and then the, the south becomes another war. Mm. Uh, and if you really want to cut the south off, then you take out the Kirsch Bridge, right? If you're in Mariupol, your HIMARS might have enough range to hit the, the Kirsch Bridge, which is a bridge that connects Crimea, the, the eastern bit of Crimea across mm. to Russia. So, you know, I think there's some bold stuff going on whether they've got the troops to take advantage of it you know you could really be quite imaginative they have been so far and they have absolutely the initiative and the world on side again just a small simple figure of the momentum they've got is 101 nations voted in support of having Zelensky address the UN General Assembly and only seven didn't and those seven Uh, your stock standards, your your North Koreas, you know your your Iran's, yeah, uh, Syria. I mean, the, uh, yeah. unsurprising at all. Um, so, one prominent question that keeps popping up is uh, why is the US refusing to give uh, Ukraine uh, attackums, uh, the Army Tactical Missile System? Any thoughts on that from either of you? Because uh, many are saying that this could be the decisive change uh, if they were given such weapon systems with such significantly increased range. Uh, so what's your thoughts? Maybe John, then Mike? Sure. So, uh, I mean, why aren't they? I mean, why didn't they supply some weapons earlier? It's a group, you know, National Security Council decision, weighing risk and benefits. Some of it's, in my opinion, not fear-based, but a concern about allowing Putin to escalate because he said certain weapons would in his view, which is just ridiculous. I mean, Ukraine has earned 
those weapons and how they've used the aid that they've received so far. But here's what I think. Do the Ukrainians need ATACMs to win this war? No. Would it speed operations and their ability to hit deeper into you know, occupied Ukraine into key objectives? Yes. But one, keep the aid that is needed, right? Some of this stuff is about bullets, vehicles. Or, that isn't the decisive tool. That isn't saying, I, I think they deserve it. Some people think they may have variations of it, and there's a reason why there's there's got to be this plausible deniability. Like, I don't I didn't know what blew up the, the base in Saki, you know, in, in Crimea. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't, I, yeah. That wasn't us. You know, so I, I think yeah. it's yeah. it's something that we grabbed onto, but you know, I think they should be given any weapon that will help them. So that's my opinion. Hmm. Mike, any thoughts? I, I think there's two schools of thoughts in Western capitals. One is everyone agrees that Ukraine needs to win the war by win. I mean, evict Russian forces from. But beyond that, there's two schools of thought. One is that in, in if we cause the Russian army to collapse, then that's probably the end of Putin. And that's a good thing. You know, maybe Russia will break up, you know, all that. so that's a good thing. The other school of thought is if the Russian army collapses and it's caused the end of Putin, mm. God knows what's coming next. Like, mm. you know, there's some, there's people to the right of Putin and, and these guys are real nut jobs. And, and so, and I do wonder whether this, I, I wonder whether that plays out in the types of weapons mm. that get given. Because they're like, well, we don't, we, yeah, we want to win not too quickly. Because if they win too quickly, then we don't know what's going to come. Next. You know, so I, I feel like the what weapons supplies comes out of, like all bureaucracies, comes out of a process of horse trading and negotiation mm, between mm. these two camps, which are like, win, it'll be great, and win, it'll be a disaster. Um, mm, and mm, so that's, mm. yeah, that's, and I think you see that in like Macron. You know, President of France saying, "Well, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to humiliate Putin," and you know, there's there's definitely concern in Europe, mm. certainly amongst European leaders. I don't, I don't know so much about what the US think about this. That if Putin loses and Russia breaks up, or some someone worse than Putin gets in power, then then that will be an even more of a headache for us to deal with. And that's potentially a real possibility. I mean, we kind of, and if you were to judge it by Twitter, you know, the the solution to this is. Uh, give Ukraine all the weapons you can get, decimate Russia, get a coup inside uh, Russia to decapitate Putin. But I think that does forget the reality that, uh, you know, there are still some significant players in Russia who, who are on the far right and who want total war. It's like in every country in the world, right? They are the most motivated. The far the far of both spectrums are the most motivated. They're the loudest. They yeah. command the most yeah. uh, attention. And it's the sixty percent again that are that are indifferent, the everyday person who is not really wedded either way. You know, they'll just end up being folded uh, by again the you know more most powerful voices. I'm sorry, we're going to say something. Mike? I was going to say that there's five thousand nuclear weapons in Russia. Yeah, and so if there's a coup or mm. some kind of instability. Where do they go? What yeah. happens with those? Maybe the only thing worse than a strong Russia is a weak Russia. Mm, yeah, we've kind of seen what happens, what potentially can happen post the fall of Soviet Union of decommissioning nuclear weapons, but uh, it's not necessarily the same world right now. Well, mate, well, you're from Bosnia, right? Look at what happened in the Balkans when mm, mm. you know a big state that was comprised of different ethnicities came apart. That's still a very, you know, it's a tinderbox. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. what would Russia look like if Russia started to come apart? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and undoubtedly that's got to be a consideration for certainly European leaders, if not global leaders. Uh, but also what happens if uh, you leave Russia completely destabilized and there's a China to the south, uh, you know, from the Western perspective? Uh, that's a <laughs> that that's I mean, uh, doesn't China just get all the like Russia's the number one natural resource exporter in the world. Mm. A lot of those resources are in the east. There you go. Very yeah. population not population dense at all, but resource mm. rich. And China mm. is population dense, but resource poor. Mm. And it seems, would China just say thanks very much? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it is a, undoubtedly a scenario that the halls of power in the West ought to be analysing if they're already not. But I'm sure they already are. Uh, I'd be surprised if this wasn't part of the calculus, which is why, again, listening to the uh, Twitter pundits, uh, you know, it's always a little bit dangerous. Sorry, noting both of you are those, so uh, you know, I take that back. <laughs> you got more faith in the quality, got more faith in the quality of our leaders than I do. Well, I mean, uh, uh, well, I have more faith in the quality of our institutions that exist to analyze this, um, and maybe again, even there, I might be too uh, too hopeful. Uh, but yeah, uh, so uh, maybe a last question uh, is to put you both on the spot uh, and and kind of call it what. Uh, you know, what does the next two weeks hold? What, what should we be looking out for? Uh, what are some of those uh, indicators and warnings of this, uh, you know, going one way or the other? So for me, that one's kind of easy. Two weeks is at this phase of the word is not that much time. I think you're going to continue to see. It'll take over two weeks to see what these, where these Russian soldiers are put. Um, you know, two weeks of training. Maybe ask me about two months from now. Um, yep. um, it's really, this is the, like we were talking about, there are things uh, we didn't even talk about the air campaign, which is very surprising that's happening over Harrison right now. I mean, stuff that we haven't seen in a war before of so the number of sorties being flown, things like that. I can't make a prediction of two weeks or two months from now where that line stabilizes in the east. Two months from now, I'd call at least the west of the Dnieper clear, you know, in control by Ukrainians. I, I think that that pocket's going to going to fold personally and just because they're in, the ukrainians spent so many weeks shaping the conditions for that environment but you know it, it, this is hard i'll make the bolder statement that ukraine achieves victory in a matter of months and not years mike anything from you yeah i pretty much agree and the next two weeks is you know, it's gonna be hard to i think i think probably the most interesting thing to watch is where that where that front line settles in the northeast um, there's not many defensive positions for the Russians if they get pushed off the river off school. So where are they going to build that front line? Mm. I'd also agree with John that this is the beginning of the end of the war and that we're looking at Russian defeat, I guess, after the spring of next year. But the speed at which their front lines collapse, if Ukraine's got a strategic reserve, they could, they could do it this year. Great. Gentlemen, on that note, thank you very much. I know it's been a fast and furious discussion, but enjoyable as always. And I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll speak again in the near future. Thank you both. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.